Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are with us in person, are joining us via live stream, or watching on demand at some later date, we're glad for the opportunity to worship with you today. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. When you think about it, it's amazing that through the gift of technology, we can connect to one another regardless of location and worship together. No matter when or where you are watching from, we're glad you are here with us. Here at Dayspring, we believe nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just curious about church, or maybe you're just looking for some hope. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. Your journey matters to us, and we would love nothing more than to walk with you. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church or by checking out our Facebook page. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. To help you get the most out of the message today, we've prepared some discussion questions to help you process what you are learning on your own or with others. You can find the discussion guide in our resources section of our website. And now, let's worship together. Well, meet Pat. Uh, this is a view looking at Pat from the top of the head. Uh, for those of you who used to watch Saturday Night Live in the 80s, I know I'm dating myself here, you will remember a once famous Pat. A Pat was androgynous. No one really knew whether Pat was Patricia or Patrick. And there was lots of humor found in trying to figure it out. For our purposes today, this is Pat. You can decide whether Pat is male or female. In today's culture with that ponytail, Pat could be male or female. At least there's no man bun. Every time I see one of those, especially on my son-in-law, I start looking for scissors. It, it doesn't matter for the illustration, just pick whichever you connect with most. Now, Pat has just made a big decision in his or her life. God brought Pat to the point where he or she recognized his or her need for Christ and surrendered his or her life to Christ. Now, this is stupid, I know. I'm a, I'm a man, so I'm going to refer to Pat as a he or a him or a man. Pat could be me, so I'll think of him that way. Let's not get lost in the weeds. The Christian journey is equal opportunity. Everything we're talking about today is gender neutral. So my Pat is a man. And for the first time ever, he looked in the mirror of his life through the lens of the cross and finally found his identity in Jesus. From this point, Pat begins a journey. Regardless of his physical age right now, he is a spiritual baby. And if all goes well, Pat will grow into a fine spiritual child, probably not without a few tantrums in the terrible twos. But in an ideal world, Pat will grow always looking at his life through the lens of the cross in Jesus. 
That's why there are mirrors on all sides of the cross. So whenever Pat looks at his life, what bounces back is filtered through the lens of the cross. Now, during both of these stages, Pat will be pretty reliant on receiving help spiritually. Uh, When babies are born, they are fed. In childhood, they begin to feed themselves, but the food is still prepared by someone else. Uh, If Pat keeps at it, though, Pat will progress spiritually into the spiritual teen years. And at this point, Pat begins to learn how to fix his own spiritual needs. Uh, He might still need someone to do the shopping for him uh, most of the time, but he can fix up a good spiritual meal if he's got the right ingredients. Again, in an ideal world, Pat is always evaluating his life and identity through the lens of the cross. Now, if Pat navigates the spiritual teen years successfully, Pat will become a fully mature spiritual adult, fully capable of every aspect of feeding himself spiritually, always looking at and evaluating his life through the lens of the cross. And in these two final stages, Pat will have progressed progressively uh, moved. He will have progressively moved from receiving help from others for his spiritual development to giving spiritual help to his younger brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll call them other Pats. Make sense so far? Make sense so far? Okay, just just making sure you're with me. By constantly evaluating his life through the lens of the cross, Pat has relied on the righteousness of Jesus to help him become like Jesus. As we're going to see in a few minutes, the Apostle John calls this walking in the light. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is the ideal version of what the Christian spiritual journey looks like. Ideal. Let's be honest, nobody takes the ideal path. Nobody. We are living spirits in dead bodies, and our dead bodies are at war with our living spirits. And what generally happens at multiple points on our journey is that we stop evaluating our lives in light of the cross. Instead of a cross-focused life, we have stages or seasons or even long droughts where we actually turn the other way and begin to evaluate the cross through the lens of our lives. The bounce back from the mirrors lets you see the cross, but you are in the way. Now, if you notice on the graphic, the spiritual adult is still evaluating their life through the lens of the cross, and that's because you can't be a spiritual adult any other way. Uh, Although even spiritual adults have their moments, to be sure. But an overall characteristic of spiritual adulthood would be a consistent, over time, view of self through the cross. That's part of what it means to be a spiritual adult. But until then, we just seem to, at some point or points, take our eyes off the cross. And before you know it, we've got it backwards. We aren't evaluating our lives through the lens of the cross. We're evaluating the cross through the lens of our lives. And when that happens, we begin to look pretty good. I mean, since we're no longer using the cross as our benchmark, we have to use something to measure how well we are doing. Uh, We always make ourselves look better at the expense of someone else, which makes us really judgmental. Really, we become self-righteous instead of Christ 
righteous. Some of you might bristle at that thought, but let's call it like it is. If you aren't Christ-righteous, you are self-righteous. It's either or. There is no in-between. And when we are self-righteous, someone else always loses, even if it's only in our minds. You know, their marriage is really struggling. It's because he's never home. You can see that in their parenting. Their kids are a wreck. Just wait until they become teenagers. <laughs> They'll be totally out of control. I mean, I'm, I'm glad my family life isn't as bad as theirs. I can't believe she wore that to church. You know, homeless people just don't want to work. If they did, they wouldn't be homeless. They were 15 minutes late for church. Why even come at all at that point? Bob and Susie just filed for bankruptcy. Can you believe they can't manage their money at their age? Sheila, and Sheila just told me she hasn't been in the Bible for two years. Can you believe it? I mean, at least I open it once a week or so. I could go on and on and on. There's no end to the negative self-righteous scripts that our minds can create. And again, even if that script is only inside your head and those words never leave your mouth, you are self-righteous, period. And if you're feeling a little defensive at the moment, pay attention. God is trying to tell you something. Self-righteousness is not what John is referring to when he talks about walking in the light. In his mind, that is walking in the dark. Now, keep in mind that this isn't a salvation issue. This isn't about our eternal security. Once we have entered a real relationship with Jesus, it is ours forever. We can't lose what we didn't earn in the first place. It was a gift, and he never asked for it back, and we can't give it back. We can stomp on it a lot, throw it around, mistreat it, which is what we're talking about. Walking in the light in this context refers to the quality of our spiritual journey, not whether we are on one or not. So here's the bottom line. Walking in the light means the darkness has to go. Now, if you're just joining us today for the first time, here in the room or online, you might be thinking you've missed something. It might feel like you're coming into the middle of a sermon, and you aren't really. Uh, last week, we began our series, How Do You Recognize a Christian?, Throughout the summer, we will be looking at what the letters written by the Apostle John to the churches in Asia Minor have to teach us about the Christian life. Uh, we, will, uh, we find the overall theme of the book near the end. In chapter 5, John will tell us that he's written these things so that we can be assured that the choice to surrender our lives was the right one. It's a theme that builds on the reason he wrote the Gospel of John, which was so that we might have life through the power of Jesus' name. But how do you know you're on the right track? Well, true fellowship with Christ and others will work its way into your life, and you'll begin to exhibit some common characteristics with Christ and other Christ followers. And the first thing he mentioned, we covered last week, but let's just, uh, let's just start there, beginning in 1 John chapter 1, at verse 3. John writes, We proclaim to you that we ourselves have what we have ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. So true fellowship, which is found through a deep, authentic intimacy, will be manifested by a joy-filled life. One of the outcomes of intimacy with God is joy. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Which also means that if your life isn't joy-filled, and don't confuse joy with happiness. Happiness uh, is fleeting. It's based on circumstances. Joy is found regardless of the circumstances. You can be in the highest mountain and experience joy. You can be in the deepest of valleys and experience joy. Joy is independent of circumstances. But if your life is missing joy, there might be some clogging up in the pipes of your authentic fellowship. It's a clue that you've probably got a fellowship problem, an intimacy problem. It's something for you to explore later. It's the first characteristic John highlights that results from authentic fellowship. Like, how do you recognize a Christian? Look for joy. Deep abiding Christ followers have the glow of joy about them. Now let's work our way to the second characteristic, which means we need to get back to walking in the light or living in the light. Uh, John continues writing in verse 5, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Now follow his logic. It will get clearer in a moment. But what he is saying is that light chases away the darkness. Every time. That's how it always works. And that means if we are walking in the light with the light, then there is no darkness. Light is holy. Dark is unholy. Light is love. Dark is anything less than love the way God defines it. Light is faith in Christ. Dark is self-reliance. Light is righteousness. Dark is sin. Now, I'm, I know none of us wants to walk in the dark, but let's be honest. We seem to spend quite a bit of time there. Some of us are even there right now. Most of us have a love affair with dancing with the dark. And while we're being honest about human nature, let's, let's just admit that we believe in lots of shades of gray. We justify away lots of shades of gray in our own lives. When we judge other people's lives, we're a little more black and white. But when it comes to our own, lots of shades of gray is okay, because I'm just a person in process after all. Because the comparison game is evaluating the cross through the lens of your own life, depending on what you're looking at, my gray can look white next to your darker gray. This is, uh, on the screen you'll see, this is called a, a printer's gray scale. Uh, printing companies use them to gauge the quality of color on print jobs. And this is how we see life. So your sinful behavior might not be Hitler-worthy, but it's certainly blacker than mine. Compared to my sinful behavior, which is always weighted in my favor, side by side, it looks like this. Evaluating the cross through the lens of my life makes me look good. Always. Unfortunately, that's the wrong comparison. Evaluating my life through the lens of the cross looks more like this. Jesus is the benchmark for walking or living in the light. 
Even on my brightest day, I am still a dim bulb. Jesus is the benchmark. That's what John is leading us to. As theologian Warren Wearsby puts it, light and dark cannot coexist in the same place. If we are walking in the light, the darkness has to go. If we are holding on to sin, then the light goes. There is no middle ground, no vague gray areas where sin is concerned. So what comes next in John's letter are three deceptions that cue us that we're on the right track, that we are evaluating the cross through the lens of our lives instead of evaluating our lives through the lens of the cross. And these are signs that we have slipped past the guardrails in our lives and are free-falling into darkness. So here's verse 6. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. The first deception, they aren't really in order in the sense that they necessarily build upon one another, but they can and probably do. Uh, The first deception is deceiving others. It is lying when we want our Christian friends to think we are more spiritual than we really are. We want to make a favorable impression. Often we lie by omission. We just don't tell them the full truth. Uh, Until they hit rock bottom, liars don't want other Christians, especially the pastor, to know their life is spinning out of control in the darkness. We tell them, I used to struggle with a porn addiction, but God has given me victory. When the truth is he gave you victory just last night for the four millionth time. Uh, You've been living in victory for 18 hours. It's a victory that keeps slipping away, but the other person is left with the impression that you are truly free. That's a lie. We go to a Bible study that we didn't look at ahead of time, and we act as if we did it faithfully through the week. Someone asks us what tithing is, and you make them think that you are a faithful tither when you really are just a hit-and-miss God tipper. You tip God on the way out of the service. You get the picture. Anytime you let someone think you are more spiritual than you really are, more mature, or you whitewash your sin into a shade of gray, or aren't even honest that you have struggles, or that they are as deeply rooted as they really are, that is lying. Now, that doesn't mean that everything going on in your life is always fair game. You do have to be sensitive to the context, and that's okay. Uh, But we're talking about the motive behind the silence. And I'm just giving you a sampling of the ways we lie. We couldn't list them all. A one question to consider this week. Who are you lying to about that part of your life that is in darkness? And we all have that part. John continues in verse 7. But... If we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's the deal. In the light, we have fellowship with each other, and we are clean in the light. The opposite is also true. Sin breaks fellowship. All sin breaks all fellowship. It might not be noticeable to your friends, but that doesn't mean you haven't broken fellowship. Intimacy can be described as into me see. I let you see into me. I let the real you see the real me. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That's intimacy. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I can't see in the dark. And when you try to hide the darkness by not letting someone see it, you are really just asking them to walk around blind. And you break fellowship. At the very least, spiritually, which is where it matters. Biblical fellowship begins and ends in the spiritual realm. And you might not think people notice, and maybe they don't at first, but they probably do and don't know how to address it. Or they will, and they won't know how to address it. And your relationship will move into the inanity of superficial. Especially if your relationship is codependent. You know, I won't hold you accountable for your junk if you don't hold me accountable for my junk. Quit lying. Just stop. Besides deceiving others, another clue, again, that can build upon this one, but doesn't have to, but again, probably does, is deceiving yourself. Self-deception. It is possible for a Christ follower to live in sin, to be walking in the dark and yet convince himself that everything's okay in his relationship to the Lord. We can look at David's life as an example. Uh, For those of you newer to your faith, King David was described by God himself as a man after God's own heart. He was the second king of Israel, and he gave us a bulk of the Psalms. As God-oriented as his life was, even he experienced moments of self-deception. In 2 Samuel, we read that David lusted after Bathsheba, and even knowing who Bathsheba belonged to in the marital sense, he called for her and slept with her. Then she found out she was pregnant, and David tried to cover it up so it would go away. He called Bathsheba's husband back from the front lines of the war on some pretense just so he would sleep with his own wife, and then the baby would be his, if you know what I mean, as in no one would ever know the truth. And when that didn't work, he orchestrated Uriah's murder and then moved on with life as if nothing was wrong as if it were a small, unnoticed footnote in his relationship with God. That's not how God works. So God gets the king's chaplain involved, and it gets ugly for David. The child dies after he is born as a consequence for David's sin. I'm not sure the baby would have died if David had just confessed from the get-go. Instead of trying to cover it up and deceiving himself that all was good with God. Now, jumping back to us, if we are called to live by the law of love, to live as the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 5, using our freedom to serve one another in love, then any time we don't love like Jesus, something is wrong in our relationship with the Lord. Bad-mouthing your boss? Something's wrong in your relationship with the Lord. Running your husband's faults up and down the flagpole when you're venting with your friends? Something's wrong in your relationship with the Lord gossiping, or sharing prayer requests with others in church. Something's wrong in your relationship with the Lord. You're walking in darkness, and yet we do it all the time and act like nothing's wrong in our relationship with the Lord, as if he doesn't really care that you just ran his precious creation into the dirt. He does care, and you are deceiving yourself. Here's another probably less obvious one. Uh, The writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He's not just talking about the faith that brings you to God. He is talking about living a life 
of faith. Uh, you might look at it like maybe putting yourself in situations where God has to show up or you fail. I'm not talking about big things, but even little ones. Uh, when you don't say something that you know you should, but the fear of how someone might respond holds you back, that's the lack of faith. It might be about sharing how Jesus is the answer in some situation with a non-believer. It might be holding someone accountable for their darkness. It might be correcting someone who just acted inappropriately or said something inappropriate and hurt you or someone else. I mean, you're smart people. You get what I'm talking about. You get a pit in your stomach just thinking about it. The silence in this case is a lack of faith. Like we, we live in an uncertain world. It is the, uh, the lack of faith to keep stockpiling your money instead of giving it like Jesus calls us to because you never know what will happen. There's a line between wisdom and the lack of faith. You know what I'm talking about. Like we do everything we can to live safe, secure lives. We build our lives in such a way that we don't really need God to show up every day. We aren't that we aren't that crass. We don't, we don't say it that way, but it doesn't make it any less true. We like to feel like we're in control and we like to avoid challenging situations. On the other hand, God continually draws us to deeper faith. It's just what he does. And we fight him all the way. Our faith grows best in challenging situations. It's where the cracks in our character are revealed so we can deal with them and grow. So in his great love for you, he presses into those areas by revealing those cracks. In fact, if he isn't pressing into an area of your life that is revealing your cracks and stretching your faith, you've got a big problem. He brings us to valleys for a purpose, and we just try to escape them rather than trusting him through them. That isn't faith. It isn't that there's anything wrong uh, with safe and secure, mind you. It's about what motivates you and where you find that safety and security. And we lie to ourselves all the time that it's Jesus, but the evidence speaks for itself. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, which means that the lack of faith is sin. Like we do that all the time and deceive ourselves that everything's good between us and God evaluating the cross through the life, uh, through the lens of your life, is sin. So stop it. Just say no to sin. Verse 8. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Now, we never say those words. We never say, I don't have sin. If we said those words, people would think we're arrogant. They would see through the lies that we're telling them. So we don't use the, those words. We're much more sophisticated than that. We just live out those words as if they are true. That's self-deception. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Jesus, just as it does with other people, self-deception breaks fellowship with God. Confession is the doorway to restoration. Now, here's something you might consider this week. In prayer, ask God to reveal areas of self-deception in your life. These might not be as obvious as the lies we tell others, 
because by definition, we are self-deceived. So ask him to reveal so you can confess. There is always something in my life that risks fellowship with God. We like to dance with the dark, even if it's only in our minds. We discount the impact of our unsanctified imaginations on our fellowship with God. Beyond fantasy, we nurse fear, anxiety, anger, discontentment, hate, which we could argue is anything less than full-on God-centered love. We allow these negative scripts to run rampant through our minds. Maybe God told us to set our minds on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, just so that we'd give them a break. Okay, that's me talking. That's not theologically sound. He told us to set our minds on those things because the negative scripts feed our self-deception and steal our peace. Ask him to reveal and then do something about it. Because here's something else to consider. Just as we see in these passages, the contrast between light and dark, there is another one that we should pay attention to. And that's the contrast between our words and deeds. Now, we've already seen this contrast twice, and we're about to see it for the third time. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship, but then our lives don't prove that out. And then in verse 8, if we claim or if we say we have no sin, but then our lives don't prove that out. If our words don't match our deeds, we have a problem. So it's not enough to ask God to reveal and then confess. Those are just words. They need to be followed up with actions. If he reveals, you do. If you aren't going to do, why should he waste his breath revealing? Either you do, or it's doo-doo. Okay, besides deceiving others and self-deception, John's next deception is thinking that we are deceiving God. Now, we know that's not true intellectually, but denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Now, here's how it works in our lives. We get to the end of the day and we look back and think, I don't really have anything to confess. I didn't explode at my idiot boss. My husband didn't see uh, me roll my eyes. And that other driver didn't even hear anything I said. Like, our self-deception is, is offensive to God, not only because we're besmirching his name, but by the way we are living, but because we also go on attack. It's kind of like this. You can call me ugly, but don't you dare call my baby ugly. I mean, or maybe the reverse of that. I'm not just offending God with my sin. I'm denying the truth, and since he is the truth, I'm calling him a liar. He says it's sin, and I say, eh, no, it's not. I'm just fine. Essentially, we're saying, I don't really need Jesus. What he did on the cross was for other people because I'm righteous enough. Listen, you don't want to break fellowship with God. Life is way better with him on your side than fighting against you. You will always lose in that scenario. There will never be a David and Goliath moment when, uh, when Goliath is God. And don't rest in the truth that once you're saved, you're always saved. Well, that's certainly true. You don't want to test God. Except in money. That's the only place he's told us that we can, we can test him. But you don't want to test God. Other than that, for the Christ follower, the worst thing God could do would be to allow you to have your own way. 
as hard as the road might be when you are walking in the light, at least you can see. Stumbling in the dark is never fun. And for God to remove his blessing over your path is devastating. One of the first consequences of walking in the dark is a loss of blessing from the Bible. You cannot read the word profitably while you are walking in the dark. You cannot pray effectively. You cannot fellowship fully. Your worship is empty of meaning for both you and God. It's a slippery slope that just gets darker and darker because sin is an appetite, an appetite that is never satisfied. If you want to be walking in the light, the darkness has to go. Which is why John is warning us about stumbling around in the dark. Uh, moving into chapter 2. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. If, if one of the assurances of our salvation is the fullness of joy, if one of the ways you recognize that you are on track spiritually or one of the ways you recognize God is at work in someone else is joy, here's the second one. Sinlessness, light walking, consistently evaluating your life through the lens of the cross, which none of us does perfectly, which is no surprise to God, which means he's got that covered too. John continues in verse 1 and then into verse 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Now there are two concepts that we should note in these verses. First is the theology of propitiation. That's the big churchy word that scholars like to throw around. Propitiation. For us everyday folk, propitiation when applied to Christ means that Christ satisfied God's holy law on our behalf. Most of us already know this, at least in concept, even if the word propitiation is new to us. At the cross, God judged our sin. Our sin is an offense to a holy God, and it always, in every form, whatever shade of gray it might be, breaks relationship with him. But in his love for us, God offered Jesus as our Savior. He took the punishment that we could never pay on our own to clean the slate and restore relationship, if we want it. He offers it freely, but we need only accept it. He doesn't force it on us. But Jesus' job wasn't finished after the resurrection, which brings us to the second theological truth in these verses. He is our advocate. While Jesus was sacrificed for the sin of the whole world, he now only advocates for believers. He is at the right hand of God the Father. And when we sin, he reminds God that he's covered that one too. In that sense, in the original language, you can picture a courtroom where he is our defense attorney. And he comes alongside us like a lawyer would. And we, as, and we stand at his side as he pleads our case as we confess. True confession is staring deception of every kind in the face and calling it what it is. Envy. Greed, lust, fear, crappy attitude, faithlessness, whatever. No whitewashing it. And then leaving it there in the courtroom and living differently. Walking in the light. Now, as much as it is true that you are either in the light or in the dark, either or from God's perspective, it is also true that we are people in process. And none of us is completely walking in the light all of the time. We aren't perfect. 
And as I said earlier, even on my brightest day, I am a dim bulb. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Though he is perfection, he doesn't project that expectation onto us. That's what we have Jesus for. He just calls us to walk in more and more light and less and less dark. As he reveals dark places, we allow his light to shine over and over again until the day we finish, we cross the finish line. We call that sanctification. It, it's, it is becoming more like Jesus every moment, turning up the wattage every moment. The brighter you shine, the easier it is to see the dark when it appears so that you can deal with it. The darker uh, it is in one area, the less light there is around the edges of that dark area, meaning that uh, one dark area breeds others and nothing good festers in the dark. Quit dancing with the dark. God has called you out of the darkness and into the light. And if you want to be walking in the light, the darkness has to go. Let's pray. Father, it's really a, a, a heavy message. You can feel the heaviness in the room. Because at the, at the end of the day, we all know that there are areas of our lives where we still dance with the dark. There are areas of our lives where we have bought the lie of the enemy that the darkness represents freedom. And that freedom in the dark is better than being in the light. Too many of us, too much of the time, turn away from the cross and use ourselves as the benchmark for Jesus. We're really good at, at we're really good at doing that. Like in this room, uh, watching online. Father, we ask that you would shine light in all of our dark places. We ask that you would shine light and we would faithfully obey step by step walking into the light. And whatever it is. For, for some of us, that means we need help. For some of us, that darkness has such a hold on us that is so powerful that we need help. Give us the courage to quit lying to our friends, to quit lying to our spouse, to quit pretending like the elephant's not in the room. Father, it's also possible that here in the room today or watching online, there are people who have never walked in the light. They might not have ever looked at it that way, but, uh, but it might be possible that you're watching today or in the room and, and you realize that you've, you've never believed that Jesus 
called you into the light. That he came and died after living a perfect life so that you could walk in the light. It really is simple to begin the journey like my pat. You just have to believe that Jesus came and called you into the light. That he is enough. Just repent. Walk away from the darkness. And in the light, you will find life. It's that easy. The, the steps that you take afterward might not be as easy, but it's that easy to start your journey. All you have to do is say, yes, Lord. Yes. I am not enough. Jesus is. And I surrender my life to you. And if you're watching or in the room and you've made that decision today, I really want to invite you to let us know on the, the communication card that you've made a new decision today. Now, for those of us who, who follow Christ already, I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in this place, and I trust God's work in your life. And what that means is that I believe you already know what darkness he's calling you to step out of. Will you do it? And I want to invite you to let us know that you decided to walk out into the light in whatever area of your life. As a staff, we're pretty safe. But we'd like to come alongside you and pray with you and encourage you and, and um, make sure that you've got the tools that you need to stay in the light. You can do that on the communication card as well. Just in the, when asked for blessings or prayer, just write that in there. We want to be light walkers. We want to be light walkers. And Father, we know that it is only the righteousness of Jesus that can make that happen. So may we always evaluate our lives through the light of the cross that we might walk in the light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, thank you for your generosity and your commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters, and God never ceases to surprise us with what He is able to do because of your commitment to following Him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. There is no expectation or obligation for you to give. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen. And for those of you who still use them, you can also mail a check to us. 
We'd like to thank those of you who subscribe, like, and share these messages with your friends. If you are listening on our podcast, feel free to leave a review. More of Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems, and we appreciate your help inviting others to check him out. We'll see you next week.